Part 1 of Two Essays on Military History, Strategy, and Tactics, Mountain Warfare, 1909, and Naval Strategy, 1917. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Two Essays on Military History, Strategy, and Tactics, Mountain Warfare, 1909, and Naval Strategy, 1917, by various authors. Part 1. Mountain Warfare. Some Principles of Frontier Mountain Warfare. The saying that there is no new thing under the sun is as applicable to military affairs as to those of everyday life, for it is fully admitted that the principles underlying all strategy and tactics, whether of mountain or other warfare, are immutable. But though the principles of strategy and tactics are unchanging, organization, formations, and minor items of procedure must be continually amended to meet ever-varying circumstances, and in addition, each campaign possesses special characteristics demanding further modification. There are, in fact, no invariable rules in the conduct of war, and whilst formalism is harmful in all matters, in military operations it is disastrous. An army relying on an established code of rules will often defeat itself in their application, and even if this disaster is avoided, the enemy will soon become aware of the methods in vogue, and will so frame his tactics as most advantageously to counteract them. Each problem, great and small, each set of circumstances, must therefore be considered on its merits. Principles must be applied in the solution, not rules and strategy, tactics, organization, equipment, and other matters arranged accordingly. It is in this spirit that the problems of Indian frontier warfare should be approached. General Considerations the strength and organization of a force destined to undertake operations against the transborder clans of the Indian frontier is naturally conditioned by the physical features of the area, by its fertility, and by the numbers, character, organization, and armament of its inhabitants. It has been truly said that in war every available man should be employed, for one can never be too strong. But this aphorism is always qualified by the number of men that can be fed in the district which is to form the seat of war. The problem of the numbers to be used against the Pathan tribes is, therefore, by no means easy of solution. For, as a great French king said of Spain, in mountainous countries possessing, as does the Indian borderland, few natural resources, but inhabited by a hardy, though scanty population, large armies risk starvation, small are in danger of defeat. The tribesmen of the northwest frontier are brave and inured to fatigue and hardship. A considerable number have been trained in our Indian army, and these have some knowledge of tactics and acquaintance with British methods. The clansmen possess no artillery, but in other respects are fairly well armed, and owing to the cheap sale of rifles and ammunition in Afghanistan, are daily becoming more formidable in this respect. They suffer, however, from two grave military faults, lack of discipline and cohesion, and at present would, it is believed, be unable to mass against any one of several columns invading their fastnesses. 
they would more probably be content merely to defend their own valleys and homesteads rather than attempt to defeat in detail the divided forces of an invader operating from exterior lines it would seem then that in a campaign in the indian borderland british troops would be justified in undertaking a concentric invasion from several localities certain advantages may also be claimed for this policy the road space occupied in these pathless regions by a large force moving in one line is so great that as was demonstrated in sir w lockhart's advance from shunawari in eighteen ninety seven the rear of the column will be several days march behind the leading troops in these circumstances not only will risk of defeat in detail be even greater than in the case of concentric invasion for small columns can better exercise mutual support than can a large force moving in a restricted valley but the length of the convoy train and the seeming strength of the force will be a direct temptation to the tribesmen to avoid battle and have recourse to guerrilla warfare besides if small columns are employed the whole country will be in the first instance overrun and the enemy may on account of the apparent weakness of the various detachments take heart of grace and fight this after all is what is most desired for the aim is always to attain rapid and decisive victory and so end the campaign an argument against convergent invasion is that since it may be necessary to use more than one line of communication not only will the employment of larger numbers be necessary but more transport animals the provision and care of which really constitutes the main difficulty in frontier warfare will be required this drawback may however be mitigated by opening only one line of communication along the easiest route the other detachments moving as flying columns until the heart of the district is reached when their surplus animals can be transferred to line of communication duties strength and organization of columns in deciding the strength of a column for an expedition against the northwest frontier tribesmen the first requisite having regard to the foregoing considerations is to limit numbers that in the topographical conditions likely to be met the force can as an entirety make a march of reasonable length let us say eight or ten miles assuming that the column will move at an average rate of about two miles per hour that in order to avoid risk of disaster it is as a rule desirable for the main force not to march before dawn and to be in camp by dusk and that ten twelve hours of daylight are available it is clear that the road space occupied must not for a ten mile march exceed ten to fourteen miles that is to say the numbers that can fulfill this condition on a narrow track amount to about forty five hundred fighting men carrying three days rations on the person and five days on transport animals suppose that four such columns are destined to invade the afridi tirah 
The Afridis are said to possess 25,000 to 30,000 fighting men, and if it be assumed that two-thirds of these have breech-loading rifles, and that the whole mass is unlikely to attack any one or even two columns, the largest hostile gathering that a British detachment may expect to meet is six to 8,000 men, of whom 4,500 to 5,500 may be well-armed. A column of 4,500 disciplined troops need not, therefore, fear reverse. The composition of a column is regulated by the topography of the area of operations, but the following example will show how the allotment of troops may be determined. As basis for calculation, a mixed brigade organized for independent action may be taken. Footnote 1. One British Infantry Battalion three native infantry battalions, one-half British field hospital, one-and-one-half native field hospitals, one field post office, brigade supply column. And footnote. To these troops may be added a squadron of Silidar cavalry, if the country is suitable to its action, and a mountain battery, which, together with the infantry, form a handy force of the three arms. But the column is still weak in infantry, on which the brunt of the fighting will necessarily fall, and possesses no technical troops for road-making, etc., both requirements may be fulfilled by the addition of a pioneer battalion, or, since some hold that sappers and miners are more economical than pioneers, a battalion of British infantry or of Gurkhas and a company of sappers and miners may be included. It now only remains to give the troops an ammunition column, the necessary staff, certain additional medical and administrative details, and the force one infantry brigade, organized for independent action, one squadron, one mountain battery, one British battalion, one company sappers and miners, etc., will be complete and adequate for its purpose. Marches and Protection A body of troops moving in an enemy's country is liable to be attacked at any time, and from any direction, and must therefore always take measures for the protection of its front, flanks, and rear. In warfare in civilized and highly developed countries, when the enemy's object is rather to defeat the fighting force than to harry the convoy, and when troops can march on broad frontages, the protection given by bodies of cavalry with horse artillery flung far to front and flanks, and supported, if necessary, by infantry, is usually adequate. But when the line of march leads along a single file track, winding through narrow valleys and over rugged mountains, when the column, compared to its strength, occupies an inordinate length of roadway and is therefore especially vulnerable to flank attack, and when the enemy, or at any rate a portion of his warriors, prefer plunder of baggage to pitched battles, other measures to safeguard the force must be taken." Flank guards can rarely make their way over the steeply scarped hills enclosing the northwest frontier valleys, and since the advance guard can, in such conditions, effect no more than the clearance of the valley in which it is moving, 
it becomes necessary to adopt a sedentary form of protection for the flanks of the force this consists of pickets posted along the route in localities commanding approaches to the roadway or from which the enemy can fire on the column these pickets together with the advanced and rear guards secure the movement of the remaining troops they are as a rule found by the units composing the advanced guard and withdraw under the supervision and if necessary with the assistance of the rear guard the order of march of a column in border as in other campaigns is conditioned by the proximity strength and probable action of the enemy by the topography of the district to be traversed by the object to be obtained and by the composition of the force the first duty of the staff officer to which is confided the drafting of orders for a march will therefore be by personal observation and from intelligence and other reports to find out as much as possible of the country and of the enemy's dispositions and probable tactics armed with this information he will be in a position to arrange the order of march of his column according to the circumstances of the case when the enemy for instance is in force in the vicinity and his actions such as throwing up of entrenchments harassing camp in large numbers imply that he will offer vigorous resistance to the advance it is probable that the baggage and supply columns will be best parked under sufficient guard either in the camp or in some other locality easy of defence whilst the remainder move off in preparatory formation for action if the clansmen are reported to be inclined to dispute the advance in force but are some distance from the camp the most suitable order of march may be deduced as follows the enemy being in strength the column should move in compact formation and deliberately the advanced guard being pushed only so far forward as to secure the troops from surprise and as few road pickets sent out as may be in order that the fighting force may be reduced as little as possible the method of posting and withdrawing pickets will not materially differ from that which will be described later the tribesmen being known to be in force and prepared to resist it follows that the bulk of the fighting men must be at the head of the column and as the advanced guard will be near the remainder it need be only sufficiently numerous to ensure that the duties of protection are adequately performed suppose the tribesmen five miles distant and that as a rough basis for calculation two companies can secure about one and a half to two miles of roadway then about three companies will be required for picketing if three companies be added for other purposes the advanced guard infantry should be of sufficient strength the advanced guard will require a proportion of technical troops for road-making and repair and for this purpose two companies of pioneers or the bulk of a company of sappers and miners may be allotted cavalry are not it is considered in place with an advanced guard moving in an enclosed and intricate country nor since the main body will be close behind need any special medical details be included whether artillery should be allotted is a more open question in favor of placing guns with the advanced guard 
it can be argued that they may be of assistance in clearing the hills to be occupied by pickets or vanguard against their inclusion it may be argued that artillery ammunition will necessarily be scarce owing to the difficulty of carriage and should only be employed when an advantageous opportunity for inflicting loss occurs but that advanced guard commanders are prone to make too much use of their guns on the whole when the advanced guard is not far from the main body it would seem that the inclusion of guns in the former is unnecessary the organization and order of march of the main body may be as under it is clear that the numbers available for action will be those left over after suitable deduction has been made for baggage and rear guards these therefore must first be allotted light duty men officers servants cooks etc should suffice to secure the regimental transport and for policing the drivers but the supply column hospitals and reserve ammunition requires special escorts and perhaps one company each may be adequate for the two first mentioned and one or two companies for the ammunition the strength and composition of the rear guard is the next item and this is regulated by its function of supervision of the retirement of the pickets such being the case it appears that in no circumstances should a large force be detailed as a rear guard there is not space in a narrow valley for a strong rear guard to maneuver so that it will merely afford the enemy a good target without corresponding advantage besides the rear guard can if necessary be continually reinforced by incoming pickets a rear guard then should rarely include more than four companies of infantry and in the circumstances under consideration may be weaker though cavalry may be useful for the delivery of a counter-attack the horses afford an easy mark whilst its presence with the rear guard may cause the enemy to keep to the hills instead of descending into the valley where they will be more vulnerable cavalry it seems should therefore not be added to the rear-guard infantry mountain guns may be of assistance to pickets in distress or in the delivery of a counter-attack but they should both for their own security and to prevent waste of ammunition be kept well back in the present case the rear-guard is not likely to be harassed so no artillery need to be included a rear-guard does not require technical troops but some hospital riding mules etc may be allotted for rapid transference of wounded the total deductions from the fighting force of the column will therefore be advanced guard six companies infantry bulk of one company s and m escorts etc three or four companies infantry rear guard two or three companies with machine guns in all about one and a half battalions one company sappers and miners there remain three and a half battalions one mountain battery one squadron and the administrative services at disposal the order of march of the main body can now be dealt with perhaps half a battalion may move in front then the mountain battery which should not require a special escort next the three battalions 
After these may follow the reserve ammunition, the hospitals, the second-line transport, with B. Echelon, first-line transport, of all troops, except the advanced and rear guards, and then the supply column. At the tail of the main body may move the B. Echelon of the advanced and rear guards, so as to be readily available in case any troops belonging to either are obliged to bivouac outside camp and finally since they are unlikely to be able to undertake effective pursuit may come the cavalry so as to be at hand in case they are required to assist the rear guard to counter-attack by charging any tribesmen who have ventured into the valley though b echelon first-line transport of the advanced and rear guards is placed at the end of the column it is considered that all troops should be so equipped that they can be independent of camp and transport for at least two and better skill for three days it is a lesser evil to carry an extra but in some degree decreasing load even if it prejudices mobility than to starve or run undue risk of sickness from cold and damp the next case to be considered will be when the enemy is not in great force and is more likely to harass than to seriously resist the advance of the column in such circumstances the main objects will be to complete as rapidly as may be the proposed march whilst inflicting on the enemy should he give the opportunity the greatest possible loss since the distance is to be quickly traversed and because a road picket takes some time even as much as an hour to secure and establish itself on a hill it follows that unless risk is to be run of the march of the main body being delayed the advanced guard must precede the main body by at least one hour and may even move off in the twilight which precedes dawn this settled the composition of the advanced guard may be dealt with if it is proposed to make a ten-mile march then calculating from the data previously mentioned about one battalion will be sufficient to picket the roadway to this force some four companies may be added so as to leave a good margin for securing the campsite and for unexpected contingencies technical troops will as before be required and as the advanced guard will be some way from the main body a section of mountain artillery may be included neither cavalry nor special medical units seem necessary the composition of the advanced guard may therefore be one and a half battalions infantry one section mountain battery the bulk of one company sappers and miners as already stated before deciding on the order of march of the main column the deductions to be made for escort and rear guard duties must be fixed light duty men etc should suffice to secure the regimental transport three companies to safeguard the reserve ammunition hospitals and supply column whilst the mountain battery hardly needs a special escort in respect of the rear guard in the case under consideration it is possible that the pickets may be harassed as they withdraw the strength of the rear guard may therefore amount to four companies of infantry with machine guns and one section mountain artillery with some ambulance riding mules etc in addition 
the total deductions for purposes of protection from the fighting force of the column therefore amount to infantry two battalions three companies artillery two sections sappers and miners one company and there remains for disposal infantry two battalions five companies artillery one section cavalry one squadron besides various administrative units no serious opposition being expected to the march of the column the comfort of the troops may be considered in regulating the order of march as before, and for the same reasons, the cavalry and B. Echelon first-line transport of the advanced and rear guards and of the picketing troops may march at the tail of the main body. It should hardly be necessary to place, in addition, a body of infantry at the end of the column, but if desired, the remaining four companies of the battalion furnishing the rear guard may move immediately in front of or behind the cavalry. The rest of the fighting force can march at the head of the main column, followed by the reserve ammunition, hospitals, B. Echelon, first-line transport, with the second-line transport, and then the supply column. In circumstances where little or no resistance is expected to the forward movement of a column, but serious opposition to the withdrawal of pickets and to the march of the rear guard, the following modification will be necessary in the order of march just dealt with. The strength, composition, and time of march of the advanced guard need only be altered by the deduction of, say, one section of sappers and miners, and perhaps, two, the withdrawal of the mountain guns. The escorts, etc., of the non-fighting portions of the main column may remain as before suggested, as may the strength and composition of the rear guard. The order of march of the main column will, however, require transposition somewhat as follows. Since the principal opposition will take the form of pursuit by the enemy, the bulk of the fighting troops should move in rear of the main column, so as to be in position to undertake the offensive if required. The units may, therefore, march as follows. Two companies of infantry, the supply column, the B. Echelon, first-line transport, except of the advanced and rear guards, with the second-line transport, the hospitals, the reserve ammunition, B. Echelon, first-line transport of the advanced and rear guards, the rest of the infantry, less four companies, the remainder of the artillery, one section of sappers and miners, the cavalry, and finally four companies. Footnote 2 First line transport is usually divided into two echelons, A and B. The former includes ammunition reserve, entrenching tools, water, signaling, and medical equipment. The latter, blankets, rations, and cooking pots, etc. End note. End of part one.